at this first prologue of John, you have the arrow directly at the heart of this cynical idea that God cannot communicate with his creatures in ways that he would choose to. And so we, over against that, say not only can he communicate, he has, and his communication is trustworthy and sure. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Great. Yeah, doing great, Nick. Matt, how's the home renovation coming? Do we need to call the property brothers in? <laughs> it was, it's been finished. It's, it's great. We actually have a floor that we can walk on now in the kitchen. Showering in your own house, et cetera. Showering our own house. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it's actually. And don't we have living. the stimulus? Don't you have the stimulus check to thank you? Save your great, great, great. Yes, I have six children. I have six children. Each child worth $1,400. There you go. Finally so pulling their weight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I would have sold them for that much money, but just to have the money given to us for that, having to sell them. And it's some great. magic beans. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, no, well, we can thank our great, great grandchildren for that. Um, yeah. That gift. That, so that <laughs> they'll be paying for it, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that is until the aliens come. And so then we'll, um, or, or they're already, already here, here, don't you know? Right. Yeah, well, as long as they bring, uh, as long as they're, they're like, you know, bring some of the stuff that came when, when V came, you know, like remember the, uh, some of the medical technology and some of the, you know, we I, might could, we could, we could uh, barter, but I'm afraid, you know, it's just going to be like Mars attacks. And then, like we come in peace and then just mow everyone down. Yeah. Oh, so at least so, I don't go out. We just, one, we just showed the one. kids independence day and they loved it. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to earth. That's right. <laughs> So for our topic today, um, recently our friend Ben Jeffries published on our Stand Firm website an article entitled Anglicans and the Inerrancy of Scripture. In it, he talks about something that uh, you've talked about before, Matt, the idea that some people come to Anglicanism as a supposed refuge from the fundamentalism of their former churches. And then when they encounter Anglicans who hold Beliefs like biblical inerrancy, they feel hoodwinked. Wait, they'll say, I thought Anglicanism was all about mystery and beauty and, you know, not knowing anything for sure. Why are you being such sticklers? <laughs> I'm sorry, I had a little us. bit of a... I had a little bit of a, tw a twitch just about there. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm working through it. Okay, keep going. But we thought that we'd lean into our reputation as sticklers and following up on Ben's article talk today about the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. He notes that the current touchstone for the inerrancy debate, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, composed in 1978, was at least in part the product of an Anglican mind, that of Dr. J.I. Packer. So we're Anglicans. We believe the Bible is inerrant, so let's talk about what that means. Is it the same as biblical literalism? What's the difference between biblical inerrancy and biblicism? Is inerrancy even important? But before we get to any of that, I want to get you both on the record. Genesis 9.29 says that Noah died at age 950. Did he really? Yes. Yeah, I don't see how you can argue with that. All right. Praise God. So what does inerrancy mean? <laughs> Maybe it's metaphorically 960 years old. You know, some days well, what does I, that mean numerology? Some days numerology. I feel, that's right. Some days I feel like I'm 900. Maybe that's what, um, you know, Moses. Noah meant. died when he felt really, really old. <laughs> that's right. Noah, Noah, a man of his feelings. Right. Um, goodness gracious. So what do we mean when we say inerrant? 
I, I love that. I mean, you're, I'm, probably, I'm sure you're going to introduce it later, but the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy has a nice like, yeah. pithy little summary of it. And that's uh, the fourth point in the short statement before the articles. It says, being holy and verbally God-given scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. Um, so I guess I mean, in that definition, perhaps say what, what we mean by verbal inspiration, and um, because it, it says we believe it to be verbally uh god given and that is that like, every word in the original manuscripts comes directly from god and if that's the case then of course there cannot be any error in it and and our understanding of the way things are and of history and everything else has to has to submit has to be submitted to what the those what god reveals in in his words there does that mean that every story in the Bible is necessarily good? Yeah, so this is, this is interesting. The, the, <laughs> it's so interesting. When we, when we go to a bookstore, we just naturally know. If I'm walking down like the mystery aisle, I know that if I pick out a mystery book, I'm not reading history. Or if I, re- if I pick out the, a poetry book, I'm not actually reading uh, mathematics. Right. We, we, know, we know naturally how to, how to distinguish between genre. And we don't judge a mystery novel by the standards that we might uh, judge a, a, a mathematical theory book, um, but when some for some reason when modern people come to the scriptures, it just all that all gets thrown out of the window, right? <laughs> and so we decide all the all all the Bible has to be in taken in this wooden uh, literal sense. No, uh, yeah, it reminds me of like Amelia Bedelia. Like, I mean, that's that's the whole conceit of the children's books, Amelia Bedelia. Like, run home, Amelia, when she's playing baseball, and so she runs home. She's like, I don't know why they wanted me to not play the game. <laughs> You know, and so she she dresses the curtains. Uh, no, what does she do? She ices. She puts the ices the fish by putting, um, you know, um, uh, icing on the fish. I mean, you know, the, this that's the whole joke. And my three year old thinks it's hilarious. And you have adults who are dismissive of the entire Judeo Christian tradition and its uh, uh, sort of reliance on the authority of Scripture by by essentially uh, dismissing it the same way that Amelia Bedelia is in for these children's books. And it's and it's it's laughable because it's so obviously a dodge of, uh, you know, sort of a dismissive dodge of any of the claims by pointing to the supposed sophisticated argument by saying, you know, well, uh, God is likened to a mother uh, or Jesus talks about a hen gathering her chickens around him and say, well, who's God? You know, obviously just a giant chicken, chicken in the sky. Gotcha. <laughs> he, you know, past the long man. He, he parts the Red Sea with a blast from his nostrils. So, yeah, I mean, he's got to have a big nose. And like, that's just, right. <laughs> Just yeah. massive, massive nose. And then you're like, oh, I mean, but that is the type, the the level of conversation on, you know, it used to not be on the web. It used to just be in, um, you know, like Western civilization class in 10th grade, you know, and this would be sort of gotcha um, by the by the um, goth kid club or whatever, um, who were <laughs> angry about Christianity. And it's like, well, you know, there, there have people have been thought about this before. I mean, that's why I tell almost every time I get to speak to a high school kids and for, I don't know, since I've been ordained. I've always said, listen, you're going to run into all sorts of arguments as to why the Bible can't be trusted or isn't clear or isn't um, authoritative or inerrant. And I was like, trust me that all of the objections you will run into have been have been addressed, have been worked through by people who are much smarter, much more educated than you and I are. 
and it can be um, um, understood. And, and the reliability and trustworthy of the scriptures is is the cornerstone of our entire faith. And so you, it's unsurprising that it would be the place where it is most directly attacked. Because once you can once you can inject a measure of skepticism into our trustworthiness of scripture, i.e., what the devil did through the serpent in Genesis three, and did God really say any of this at all? Well, if He didn't say all of it, then He may not have said any of it. In which case. Um, you can you don't have to believe any of it, you know, and that's that's the the sort of the the calculus there that we're we're trying to avoid, or we're, we're pushing back str- against. Excuse me. Right. This is one of the strengths of Ben's piece. It is you know you if if you happen to belong to a denomination or to a, a non denominational church, which I, I aka Baptist, um, and and they and that the church that you belong to re- presents the Christian faith as if it began with Billy Graham or you know, in the nineteen fifties then you're going to be susceptible to arguments uh, that have just been regurgitated from centuries past. But if you recognize that the Bible is a book that's been poured over by, by men and women with, with minds and intellects that are just so much greater than ours, who have been, um, who have been dealing with the supposed contradictions and the supposed uh, problems in the script, in the text, for for centuries and have, have have been able to show how those don't actually exist. If you belong to a domination that is rooted in tradition, then you're gonna see, okay, well, this is not really a new objection to this to the Bible. We we have we have in our heritage answers to these questions that have been given over and over again. And Ben, you know, provides some of those for us. He he in the last part of his article, he he provides a number of passages from, from the fathers. Uh, affirming the the inerrancy and the infallibility of scripture, uh, which I find helpful. So this, this, the inerrancy is not something that we just made up, you know, thirty or forty years ago to as a reaction against theological liberalism. It's something that the, it's yes. something that the, the fathers and uh, embraced, even though they wouldn't have maybe articulated it with those same words. They didn't maybe they didn't have the they didn't have the Chicago statement on inerrancy and you know four hundred, but or three hundred, but they. But they, the concept was clearly there. And I don't think anybody honestly reading, and I, I'm, I can't think of a father for whom this is not true. I can't, I don't think anybody who's honestly reading the fathers would come out with an idea that inerrancy or the, the concept of inerrancy is a new one. Yeah, I mean, in, in the you know in the ancient world at least, they would have definitely understood the the conflict between sort of um, you know classical cynicism and uh, and sort of a revelation, you know, revealed re- revealed religion. You know, I was teaching about this this past Sunday that that I feel like part of my um, one of my major tasks is in refuting false doctrine, as we've been called to do, is to encourage and equip people to at this very point to defend their understanding of the authority and inspiration of scripture precisely over against ancient and modern arguments of skepticism. I was reminded by this because they have, you know, this idea that, that if God is exists, that if, if God exists, that he would be unknowable. And then even if he, he, he was known, he couldn't be communicated via human words. I mean, this is an ancient idea it goes all the way back to uh, 380 BC um, by a pre-Socratic uh, Socratic philosopher named Gorgias that we learn about. And um, and he is sort of the father of modern nihilism um, or modern modern nihilism or just nihilism in general. And I'm always struck by that because I learned this. I think I said this. I don't know if I, where I said this before, but but I, it bears repeating. There's a there's a class name from Plato to postmodernism by a guy named Lewis Marcos. It's awesome. And he points out that John in the prologue to his gospel was directly or he thinks either indirectly or directly refuting these 
these classic cynical concepts by saying in the beginning was the word. So God is known. The word was God and with God. And so he was not only exists, but was known. And then what happened? A messenger was sent who was not the light, but to witness and testify to the light. And so you have at this first prologue of John, you have the arrow directly at the heart of this cynical idea that God cannot communicate with his creatures in ways that he would choose to. And so we over against that say, not only can he communicate, he has, and his communication is trustworthy and sure. And therefore, um, you know, all of this sort of discussion about, about the inerrancy of scripture is really just simultaneously a discussion about the existence and trustworthiness of God himself, because if he were going to communicate to us, then he would do in such a way that we could understand and we could, we could, that would be for our benefit and our edification. And so when you begin to shake that, as it was in the garden, you know, did God really say, well, then literally all hell breaks loose. And that is the, um, the state of the world that we have been sent to, to diagnose and then to preach and proclaim into that uh, the saving hope of Christ. And so that's why, you know, this is, this is just the modern iteration of a, an ancient uh, fight between God and, 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 you know, belief and unbelief between God and the world. Um, And we are his ambassadors who have this audacious thing to say about he exists, he can be known, and he has communicated thusly, um, thus says the Lord. <laughs> there we go. But, you know, I mean, I know you and I, all three of us have have uh, have labored uh, sort of painfully in various uh, churches where it's almost a joke, really, when you begin to, when people talk about the authority of scripture or sort of the way that people dismiss um, you know, traditional claims or readings of scripture, almost as if it's a, it's a badge of the enlightened um, sophisticate, you know, and it's, it's really, it was um, soul destroying um, really is the case. And, and the, the level, the perpetuation of unbelief that that unleashes um, through quote unquote churches. Well, we see the, the lack of fruit or the rancid fruit of that all around us as the, as uh, generations that were fed on a steady diet of human skepticism about the knowability of God. Well, guess what? They don't believe in God and they don't, they don't, um, they don't uh, trust the scriptures and therefore they have, um, they don't have any need for church, which, which all makes sense. Because if Noah couldn't live to be 950 and if Jonah couldn't have spent three days in the belly of a fish, then Jesus couldn't have been raised from the dead for your justification. Yeah. And that, that's it. That, well, there you go. And I love this. I preached about this the other day because we were on the Ascension, you know, because Ascension is a fantastic uh, miracle, too. You know, the idea that Jesus was carried up into heaven. I mean, it's like the it's like the um, uh, the transfiguration. You know, these are some of these are, you know, they're like ready made for for uh, CGI effects and stuff. You know, I mean, it just be. But I was saying, you know, it's funny for me when people try to rank the various miracles in the Bible and they'll say things like, well, maybe he could have turned water into wine. But, you know, this transfiguration seems like a step too far or something. And I'm always struck by that because when you think about the actual water to wine miracle, I mean, it's actually just a microcosm appropriately pun sort of intended of, um, of the creation itself, because not only does he take something out of nothing, you know, there's no wine, there's no grapes and water, you know, there's nothing, nothing to do with water. Not only does he take something out of nothing and create it, but he creates it immediately. And what was, it was aged wine. 
you know, and immediately it was this aged thing out of nothing spoken into existence by, by God himself. And so that is no less a miracle than let there be light. I mean, it's no less a miracle than why do you look for the living among the dead? I mean, it's all of them are part of a whole, that if God exists, then God can do what he wants. And thankfully he has done, um, he has given us sufficient knowledge of himself um, and his word through uh, not only his son, but through his, his written word so that we have enough, uh, we are, what does article six say that it, the Bible, Holy scripture is sufficient unto salvation. And thanks God. Thanks be to God. Or I think it was the, um, uh, saving the Bible from fundamentalism by Bishop Spong. I was reading, uh, that, that really, you know, he went off on the Ascension, you know, cause what, what, so Jesus, you know, was taken up into the sky and so does that mean that the people believe that heaven is up? I mean, how far, how far away is heaven? Has, has Jesus passed off Centauri yet? Where, how far, how far away is he from the earth? I mean, can we, can we track his progress? It was just, you know, just, just, just getting kind of mocking. Yeah. And you can generations of, of agnostic future priests are just yeah. laughing and nodding their heads yeah, and, yeah. and having awkward laughing. Um, right. The whole time. <laughs> and, 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 you know, great. This, this is a bishop in the Episcopal Church. Yeah. You know, you yeah know, Rob Bell. Rob mocking. Bell puts that book out and Bishop Spong's like, hold my sherry. You know, right. <laughs> 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 like, son, exactly. you know nothing about heresy. <laughs> <laughs> Let me show you how to mock the Bible. That's right. Um, right. <laughs> Right. right. So kids these so, days. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, but the basic logical problem is, you know, it, for, for, for progressive Christians, quote unquote Christians, the basic logical problem is, is once you admit the existence of a God who created all things, whether you I mean, were setting aside for a moment, the question of how he created um, and what, by what means he, he created life. Once you admit the existence of a God who can do all things and create something out of nothing, then the, the burden of proof is on you to say why he couldn't do this or that miracle, why he couldn't right. raise the dead, why he couldn't raise there, you have You then have lost the logical basis upon which to object to the presence of miracles in the scriptures. Including um, things like fitting a certain number of Israelites in a certain amount of land, like right, right. even things <laughs> as mundane as that. Right. Right. So, I mean, I, I, I think the atheists have more intel intellectual honesty here. Cause I mean, the atheists say, well, there's no God. Okay. Well then we can, we can, we can yes. argue about that. But, but the, but the progressive quote unquote Christian, they, they have to retreat to you know, philosophical arguments about why God wouldn't intervene or why there shouldn't be any kind of admixture between the natural and the supernatural or between the metaphysical, physical, and the physical, the physical, but, but they've already lost the argument and the burden of proof is on them to show why that has to be the case yes. and they can't or why God who made all things can't so condescend as to clearly communicate with his creatures as what we're saying which is what we're saying about the scriptures is that he's he is omnipotent and omniscient and so if he wants to communicate himself to a dog he can do or, that or through a donkey or instance. through a donkey he can do that he can which speak he can speak our language it's it's amazing but the god who created all things can actually communicate um with us through the language languages that we speak yeah. And the sad part about this is that when you lose miracles and you try to retain Christianity, then what you end up only left with is the law. You know, and we see this most clearly and most famously in Immanuel Kant. You know, he's the one, you know, religion within the limits of reason alone, um, who Gerhard, the late Gerhard, Gerhard Ferdi said was the high watermark of, of uh, legalistic uh, Christianity. 
because, you know, what he was, and I'm sympathetic to him to a certain degree because, you know, he was a budding seismologist during the Lisbon earthquake, I believe. Um, and that was the first time that people began to question, you know, what caused an earthquake? Was it God shaking the earth, you know, with his hands or was it perhaps, you know, tectonic movement underneath the surface of the earth? And so, you know, you had this kind of budding scientism that when combined with human sinfulness and in the ultimate fundamental desire to overthrow God and become God ourselves, then well, then you have this this mixture in the water, which we now call the Enlightenment, um, that was that was left that left to Christianity bereft of miracles, simply with a, an appeal to some sort of transcendent moral law. And so we see the current iteration of that some 200, 300 years later as a um, sort of, you know, we should say there's there's the eschatology that sort of the hope for the end times, the hope for the, the consummation of all things has been taken out of the hope of heaven, because who knows if that exists, you know, if, is it past Alpha Centauri or, you know, is it past and, and brought into the present. And that must be accomplished by, um, you know, hook or crook, by by political action, by, uh, you know, 51 percent, however we can make it happen. And so that's the great tragedy is that the actual salvific, uh, transcendent, transcendent, uh, miraculous reality of the of the risen Christ and the indwelling of his spirit and the promise and the hope of heaven and all of the things that that require a belief in the miraculous and the supernatural are shorn. And what you're left with is a Christianity that is essentially just a um, sort of a, a, play, a semi-Pelagian at best or a Pelagian appeal to moral improvement. And so you know, and that's why, of course, you also see you, that the longer you spend in that church, you see you're not getting better. The people around you aren't getting better. So you get angry and more cynical and finally you blame the church and then join some sort of, I don't know, like a, some sort of other social action um, uh, uh, movement that seems to have you know fewer hypocrites and less, um, less uh, overhead with respect to what it takes from your, your giving because they don't have to buy all those funny looking clothes, you know, <laughs> so you have, so there's, that's the, that's the, the reason why the churches are empty these days in part is because when you lose the belief in God, transcendent almighty, who can do whatever he wants, well, then the next things just fall like dominoes. And, and that's where, that's where we're left. I remember once watching the movie Intolerable Cruelty, which is one of my all time favorites, but I watched it with somebody. And at the end of it, they, just could not handle the intolerable cruelty of some of the characters. They've hated the characters and therefore rejected the movie altogether. And I think that we should say for maybe a second here about biblical inerrancy that while the Bible does not err, certainly it tells the story of many people who erred in profound ways and because it tells the story of errant sinful humans does not make it errant. It does not put forward as good every single thing it describes. It is the story of a sinful people in need of a redeeming God. Yeah, I, I recently read an article for the Christian Research Institute on um, cross-dressing. And I, I used <laughs> uh, used the text uh, from Deuteronomy 22.5, um, which says, you know, men don't put on women's garments and women don't put on uh, men's garments. Um, and I used IFB preachers as kind of example of the too far off in that direction. But anyway, so someone read the article and they said, this person wrote back and said, well, the Hebrew word for the coat 
that Jacob gave Joseph, you know, the multicolored, his multicolored dream code or whatever it is, right. whatever mm-hmm. it is um, could it's multi- also be. It's a multicolored dream code. I think that's right, a, right, right. Amazing right. technicolor <laughs> dream code. Yeah. Let's be fair. Right. Might, might also be, Sorry. might also be translated as princess dress. Um, because in somewhere, some other text in, in the Old Testament, apparently this is used for a female's, uh, a, woman, a woman's cloak, a woman's cloak who's uh, a princess. That translation is going to go over really big at my right. house right now. If that stands, then that is a game changer for my two little girls right now. I, 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 I doubt that. I mean, I, I looked that up and that's not quite true. But, but supposing it was true, right? Supposing that that's the case, we have Deuteronomy 22.5, which is a didactic portion of scripture, which says, do not do this. And you have a patriarch who, let's just hypothetically say, did this. So and then his brother did anything else and, wrong. That's right. And then his brother's left. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, so what do we say? Do we say, oh well, the fact that you know Joseph wore a princess dress, <laughs> hypothetically, um, means therefore that it's okay. No, right. You, there's right. a distinction a between the, the the prescriptive and the descriptive aspects of scripture. So prescriptive is what we mean when we say where the Bible says, do this, don't do that. Right. This is right. This is wrong. Here's what God would have you do. Here's what God would not have you do. The descriptive text texts are those texts that say, here's what people did. Right. So, so, so yes. David, who is, who is a type of Christ looking down from his walls of his palace, seeing a woman bathe, and and then bringing her into his palace to have sex with her, who's married? She's married to another woman, another man, Uriah. That's descriptive. Yes. Do not commit adultery is prescriptive. That's how we can know that David did the wrong thing. That's right. Well, it's, it's, I mean, that, and that's the level of engagement, like with the actual faith that that, that reveals the disingenuous, the, the disingenuous ingenuousness, dis, dis, <laughs> the disingenuity. Is that what the sure. right word? Yeah. <laughs> of um of the of the people who are you're with whom you're speaking. You know, this is the problem. Like when Jesus, remember, I, I love it when his interaction with the Sadducees, you know, who do not believe in the resurrection, came to him with questions about the resurrection. You know, immediately you're like, okay, this is not a question in good faith, right? And that's that's the level of of engagement. For instance, I'm always reminded of the um Every now and then something will come out when Time Magazine was like an actual magazine. Now it's just a blog. But like, you know, every now and then Time Magazine would come out with something saying we found we unearthed another um, Jewish camp in Israel and we found little um, idols to other gods and Asherah poles. And so see, you know, they've been polytheistic their entire history. And that Bible is not right. And I was like, well, you haven't read any of the prophets then, obviously, because the prophets are basically of one voice. Stop uh worshiping other gods like stop making asherah poles stop um, being idolaters and so we should be unsurprised in fact we would be more concerned if they unearthed old ancient jewish um uh camps that didn't uh show any um sort of signs of idolatry or or this sort of uh syncretism because then we'd say well maybe the prophets were were wrong that's right who were they you know so i think it's 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 really um again it's not laughable because these are real questions and you can always tell when someone 
um, you know, when someone comes to you and they want to believe the Bible to be true, you know, that there's, that's what Luther, Luther was always saying that, you know, when you, when the power of Christ grips your heart, well, then you begin to read the Bible as not as critically in the sense of like, you know, you're, you're afraid of it, but you actually begin to hear the voice of God, you know, by the power of the spirit, um, comforting you, convicting you and, and educating you. And so when you come up against these questions, it's not that we dismiss them out of hand, like, oh, how could you possibly have ever seen that contra- seeming contradiction? And, and, you know, how dare you point that out? We say, well, let's, you know, let's reason together, brother. You know, let's go and see how people have have talked about this because we're reading, um, albeit in a different translation, but we're reading from the similar um, uh, manuscripts as has the church for 2000 years. And we are not the first to observe this, nor we will, will we be the last. But in our generation, we need to confront it and and work through it so that that we can maintain and deepen our sense of confidence in, in the word of God. And that's, and I mean, that's the most important thing we can do as ministers in the church. You know, it's interesting to compare the uh, old Testament and the new Testament to the, the narrative sections, the gospels, acts, and the old Testament historical books, first Kings, second Kings, first Kings, Samuel, second Samuel with the golden legend from the middle ages. Have you ever, have you read that? And the golden legend is this, is this, it's a, it's a, a live, basically the lives of the saints. And it, it presents these figures in who in the middle ages were revered as just infallible, holy, pure, without error people who just live lives of miraculous wonder. And, and and that's kind of how you know if, I, that's kind of how if if someone is were someone were making up a story about the patriarchs of the of our faith, you would kind of expect, you know, okay, we're going to present them as as heroes. We're going to present them as infallible, wonderful people. But when you read the Old Testament, you see they're horrible. <laughs> they're, they're, they're awful. I mean, when you when you read about about Judah and Tamar or. Um, you know, David and Bathsheba, as I just mentioned, and you think these are the, these are the, these are the people who are the, who God used to, this, that, surely this can't be true. And then you read, then you read the, uh, you know, gospels and you see the apostles, say, yeah. you know, bumbling around. Like, Autobiographies, <laughs> right, writing about right. their own right. stories. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Peter's witness apparently lies behind Mark, the gospel of Mark. And Mark's one of the most hardest hitting books about Peter, about how how horrible he was as far as, as far as faithfulness goes and uh, under comprehension of what Jesus was trying to say and do. So, so all of that says, all of that, I think verifies for us. There's one, one other factor of verification for the authenticity of these accounts. They, they, they do not take any make any effort to hide the foibles and not just the foibles, the wickedness of of the men and women involved, which you wouldn't do if you're making up a story. Yeah. One of the things that the Chicago statement on inerrancy does acknowledge is that the revelation of God in and through the Holy Scriptures was progressive, i.e. there was an Old Testament and a New Testament. One came before the other and of course that word has since 1978 come to encompass all of these other meanings the word progressive the chicago statement does say that they deny quote we deny that later revelation which may fulfill earlier revelation ever corrects or contradicts it we further deny that any normative revelation has been given since the completion of the new testament writings what do you guys think 
the statement means when it says that revelation through the scriptures is progressive? If you read the New Testament, you have a pretty clear revelation of, of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You don't necessarily see that articulated with clarity in the Old Testament. You can now, when you read the Old Testament in light of the New, yes. you can see it. You can see aspects of it, but it's not said with okay. Now you need to circumcise in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and that's not there. You, you for you, another good example is is the question of what happens after you die. There are certainly Old Testament texts that would indicate, especially in the Psalms and and in Daniel, Book of Daniel, that would indicate that you when you when you die, if you you're trusting in Yahweh and His promise of deliverance through Abraham, that you will go to be with Him in the bosom of Abraham after you die, and then you await the resurrection. But it's it's hazy. It's it's not as it's not as completely clear as as it becomes later. I mean, in the New Testament, what happens after you die becomes very very clear. You, you, there's no doubt you go to be with jesus and then on the last day you're you're raised from the dead in your body uh but that's that's progressively revealed over time and and so and yet what you don't want to say is the new testament does away with all that ignorant stuff in the old testament because that's not the case it, it just it just builds on what has been revealed before and then jesus is the culmination of all the revelation of god so that, so that what he gives us in himself and through his apostles is the final deposit, the full deposit of the truth. Um, and, and so we have in the New Testament all that we need. All, we, uh, one, I'm referring here to the doctrine of biblical sufficiency. It, it's, yes. it's an error, but it's also sufficient. We don't, we don't need anything more than has been given to us. And so that's why the, the article there says we don't look for any more unfolding revelation as a kind of normative thing, we we have all that we need here in the pages of the of the scriptures that have been that have been progressively revealed, but then are are now completely revealed. Right. So the old testament alone was insufficient, hence the giving of the new and the story of Christ's life on earth and the explication by the apostles. But now and we do not now add to the New Testament in the same way that the right. New Testament added to the Old Testament. Right. It is now complete, as you say. Yes. I'm struck by this more and more uh, as I both, you know, teach and preach through it, but also just learn and continue my own discipleship of how grateful I am for the the breadth of um, New Testament sort of monographs that were 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 preserved by God's sovereignty, um, and how many varied, um, you know, talk about sufficiency, how many um, and, and varied um, sort of situations that they address, you know, I mean, in terms of church life, family life, in terms of political life, um, you know, there really is a sufficiency to it that we get to see through the the um, epistles to the early church um, that has equipped uh, us for every eventuality. You know, I mean, they didn't have the internet or they didn't have, um, you know, they obviously cultural uh, things change, but in terms of, of what happens when groups of sinners get together in various places and begin to um, try to work out their salvation and fear and trembling, we have a pretty good um, cross section of just about everything that, um, that we could, we could, uh, we could conceive of happening. You know, I mean, I love the Corinthian, you know, this, this scholars of Corinthian correspondence, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, I mean, so rich and so deep. And we've just been teaching through first and second Timothy and Titus, you know, and you have these, these wonderful, um, uh, sort of the revelation of God through Paul to, to equip us for, for that, which we need, you know, it is in fact sufficient. And I'm so it's a, it's a miracle in and of itself that these are the ones, these are the examples 
examples. And these are the, the, um, the situations that God preserved for our edification through the, his, his apostles um, so that we would as pastors and, and Christians and, and um, you know, some 2000 years later, be, be edified and, and equipped um, to continue the work of, of the ministry. So I think that word sufficiency is very important um, because what they're denying here in that article is with the with sort of the continued revelation. Well, if there's continued revelation like the Mormons have, well, then, you know, not only could something be changed in the future, you know, when the when the new prophet comes in the Mormon um, the church, quote unquote church, they um, you know, he can change um, one way or the other, whatever he, he sees fit. But, um, you know, we don't have that option, thank God. Um, and if there is um, not only something that could be changed, something could be, um, you know, added to it, you know, and that's that's what we see with respect to the time of the Reformation, which is what Article 6 and Article 20 of, of our 39 articles are directly addressing, is that what actually happened at the time of the Reformation was that there was a lot of um, extra laws and extra biblical traditions and sort of mandates that were just, were, were cut away, you know, not, I mean, now Luther didn't cut away as much as, for instance, the Puritans did, but he certainly didn't bind the conscience with what he kept, you know, I mean, he didn't say you have to have six candles, you have to have, you have to wear these vestments, you have to do this, thus says the Lord, he allowed for an incredible freedom with respect to your um, churchmanship, but actually freed people's conscience to simply be beholden to what the word of God said and not what the church said. And that's, that was an incredible um, uh, liberating, you know, back to, to Galatians five, you know, do not submit therefore again to the yoke of slavery is for freedom. Christ has set you free, brothers, you know, this is, this is what it means to believe in the, the authority and soul sufficiency of scripture is that for, it is a freeing book that will diagnose yes, with the law, but ultimately set free um, by the power of the gospel. And it cannot be added to or subtracted from, and that's uh, by design and its sufficiency. Here's one of the greatest problems with the charismatic movement. And if you're listening to us and you're charismatic, I love you. I'm not trying to. There's a lot of different types of charismatic. (laughs) Right, right, right. Right. But, but one of the, one of the biggest critiques of that movement is that it it adds law. So if if you really think you're getting a word from the Lord saying that so-and-so needs to do something or that, that, you know, I've got a word, the Lord gave me a word about you that you need to change this about your life. You know, you just, you just, you yeah. just added added to God's law and you've sought to bind the conscience of someone yes. else based on what you've gotten. Um, that's, I mean, and if, and if we add up all the words that have been received by charismatic prophets over the last, what, 30 or 40 years, I, I don't know, are there enough books in the world to contain them? <laughs> how, how, much, how much law have we now been given by God from these prophets? Now, one, one, thing, one of the things they'll say is, well, these are just, uh, personal revelations for individual situations. Well, look, when God speaks, it has relevance for everybody. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if God says to you, I want you to move to Idaho, I want to know what he said. I want to know his words, because that tells me something more about God, that, 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 that reveals something more about his character. You've given me something also that I might be able to apply to my life, just like we read in the scriptures where we have some kinds of revelations that seem directly direct toward individuals like Philemon. Um, but that are also applicable far beyond that yes. that one letter. So, so yeah, we now have if 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 there are if there is this kind of ongoing revelation, we have lots of laws that we should be having. We should have we should have more and more books added to the canon. Yeah, so the pearl can of great, like the pearl of great yeah. price, for instance. Exactly, um, right, right, like the Mormons. So, so that's that's problematic. I mean, especially you know, consider recently, you know, 
how many profit, quote unquote prophets predicted Trump's presidential win and apostles uh, coming out of the, the, the new apostolic reformation. I think they have like <laughs> yeah. hundreds you know, of prophets who said he's going to win. And some of them are now saying um, he did win spiritually. So he's our spiritual president, even though he's not our real. Our real. What? So what, what kind of law is that? So now, now I, if I don't consider my spiritual president, am I, am I now in sin? <laughs> if I, if I, if I reject Trump. Yeah. There's really no arguing with that. As my spiritual president, I must now be. Well, that's exactly Well, it's, I mean, you're getting to the point, you know, you're, you're getting, <clears throat> you're revealing um, with your reductio absurdium argument, um, um, the, that why we put our trust in the sufficiency and, and uniqueness of biblical revelation alone uh, with respect to what we can say and, and can't say about who God is, because once you open that door, well, then, you know, there's no end. There's no end to the speculation about who who God is or, or what he could or, or they could or she could. I mean, you know, why stop? Why stop with anything that's even remotely biblical when you have um, when you have this idea? And that's actually under the the way that people do this is when Jesus talks about sending the, um, the helper, the comforter that will lead you into all truth. You know, they talk about the new truth that he's leading you into, that he's, um, you know, that, that it contradicts the scriptures in certain uh, arguments. You, you see this take place. And, you know, these are all these are all part of the. The, the, the world that was being confronted by the Chicago statement, but also just in every generation is that there's there's people who are have found themselves by the power of the spirits um, uh, beholden to and under the authority of Scripture, um, convicted by it, uh, conscience seized by it. And then there are people who who rebel against it and kick against it and try to um, twist and um, and bend and shred it uh, to their own ends. And again, I, I would put myself I, I don't put myself up. Um, outside of the possibility of being a sinner, of course, you know, and so that's why I'm grateful for scripture, tradition, and reason to be in, in this um, stream, you know, being, being confronted by other people's interpretations, being caught and checked on my own, you know, I mean, I was telling my congregation just the other day that, that I'd, obviously the, the situation changes with every, um, every successive generation, you know, we have to figure out what it means to have the internet and iPhones and cars and airplanes, but, but far be it for me to offer you a substantially different, um, you know, theological interpretation on some of these foundational Christian issues. And if you find that, if you hear me saying that, or if I'm giving you something that you've never heard anyone else ever say in the history of Christianity, then, you, you know, please let me know because if we unintended, um, I hope, and if it's intended, then you should, you should, you know, call the bishop because that's a problem. And I think that's where, um, you know, when it fundamentally gets down to it, when we're speaking from the scriptures, we are, we are not taking the Lord's name in vain. We are speaking um, what he has, we are, we are, we are speaking into the world what he has revealed about who we are, who he is and what we need. And that's why when we stick to that, it will be simply the, the law, you know, what God says uh, that will provoke wrath, you know, and cause judgment and pain and um, and reveal our need and the gospel, which is what he has given to us in Christ. And so that's why, you know, if you can destabilize people in it, well, then what you think you're doing is sort of alleviating the, the demand and the the accusation of the law. But all you're doing is 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 losing the the power of the law or, or the directness of the law, which then ultimately waters down the direct of the gospel and that's 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 what you're you're losing when you try to attack the the authority and inspiration and sufficiency of scripture is you're ultimately going to lose the gospel because if i can't believe that god said uh the ten commandments then why would i believe that he said um he came to save me 
you know, this, these are, this, this is what's going to happen. I think the Christian implicitly knows this. I, I think that we, we, there's, there's the objective arguments that we could make for the inerrancy of scripture, which I think are valid and were in work and are sufficient to establish that. But, but I think the believer who has the Holy spirit just implicitly knows that when he reads the scriptures or she reads the scriptures that he's reading, you know, God's word. I mean, I, I, I the illustration I used on Sunday, we were talking uh, during my sermon on, on the Ascension um, and talking about the, the work of the Holy spirit and the apostles to illumine for them. The old Testament was that, you know, we, we kind of have a, 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 a the same experience of that. When I, when I read the Bible, although I'm not an apostle, when I read the Bible, it's very much different for me than when I read another book. When I read, I've read, I've read I'm a history buff. I love history. Um, I've read lots of history books, but I've never had a history book read me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the scriptures read me. I, I've examined lots of historical characters throughout my study of history. I've never had one of them examined me, but Jesus, Jesus examines me in the pages of the book. And that's, that's what we, we call the implicit witness of the Holy spirit that the scriptures are, are true. We just, we just know it. And, and I, and I think that there are lots of people trying to hide from that because it's more comfortable to believe otherwise, but, but the true Christian, I believe knows that when he or she opens that book, that it's really he or she who's being opened and examined. There's a sense in which you can't help, but feel something sharper than a two-edged sword cutting into you and divide, <laughs> dividing bone from marrow, as Hebrews says that the scripture is living and active. We, uh, we have a lot more that we could say about this, but it is all the time that we have this week. We may well revisit these issues in upcoming episodes. We'll see. Thank you, though, as always, for listening. If you'd like to keep the conversation going, we hope you will. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes or send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to Matt Kennedy and to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. 